Bibles now, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 1. And this evening's message is part number two of the message I began last week. There's someone that I want you to meet. Revelation, as I hope you know by now by the introductory sermons that have already given uh, on the book, is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The word revelation in the original language means to take the lid off. And this book takes the lid off some of the mystery that surrounds the end times when Jesus is coming back. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus will return in power and glory. And everyone will stand in awe of Jesus when he comes back. Jesus will rule in a new world. He and his saints will rule in a new world of righteousness. But not only do we see the work of Christ, as we talked about in the first part of the message last week, but we also see a description of Christ. I mean, we see him in his person here. And you and I, we know Jesus as the one who's the Redeemer. He's the one who sacrificed himself for our sins. And this first chapter declares in, in, in the first part of it, he washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's a wonderful description of Jesus. But... As Jesus appears here in the Revelation, this is not so much or isn't about really Jesus coming as a sin offering as he did the first time when he came into the world. But this is Jesus as he comes back to take this world, uh, the world's authority back to himself that's been usurped by Satan and, and others. And so Jesus comes to claim the title deed to the earth as his own. So in this chapter, uh, John doesn't see Jesus as he remembered him in the Last Supper. Not the one that, as he leaned on Jesus' breast as they ate, he sees him in a different way. And as John describes him, I I just kind of get the picture in my mind, this is somebody that you need to meet. You haven't seen him this way before. Well, this evening, we're going to go back and read some more, uh, really back to the same verses that we started with last week as we go into part number two of this message. So let's pick up the reading. If you'll stand with me, please. Uh, We're looking at Revelation chapter 1, and I want to pick up the reading at verse number 12. Verse number 12, and then we'll read down to verse number 18. Revelation chapter 1, verse number 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage tonight, please open our hearts to the description that John gives of Jesus. Lord, may we really see you high and lifted up in all of your splendor and majesty. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In last week's message, I had the opportunity to give you a prelude of 
what John was doing, the conditions, what they were like, and the circumstances as John writes the Revelation. And so we answered the question, where was John and what was he doing when God gave the Revelation? Well, first of all, we talked about the position of John. And his position was that he was on a small island by the name of Patmos. This is a little island in the Aegean Sea, and it's a rocky, barren, windy place. And John had been put there for preaching the gospel of Christ. He was there because of persecution. The emperor Domitian, who was the the leader of Rome at that time of the Roman Empire, had exiled John to this island because John was just a fearless preacher, and he'd been preaching too much the gospel of Christ. And so he was exiled there, but... Domitian could not shut John up. I mean, the Roman Empire could not shut up the message of Christ because John had the opportunity to write. And Jesus appeared to him, and he gave him a prediction of the doom of all the world's systems, even that very one that had placed John in that island in persecution. So John was there uh, on this barren land. He was in his physical body, but that didn't stop the spiritual communication that he had with God. Folks, that is a wonderful thing for everybody in here tonight. Because no matter where you are, no matter what trouble that might come into your life, with just the thought, in just a moment, you can be right in the very throne room of God and you can seek God's help for any problem that you have. And so here was John. He was in deep meditation on the Lord's day, as he tells us. And then he heard this revelation or was given the revelation of Christ. The second thing that we discussed in the message last week was the disposition of the church. These uh, writings or these sayings that came from Jesus was as Jesus stands in the midst of his churches. He's the one who holds the power over the church and over the messengers of his word. And so the Bible shows us here that he holds them in his hand. This is a message given to seven churches in Asia And these churches, as I've said so many times before, these are representative of churches in all ages, but these were actual churches in those geographical locations at that time. Jesus wanted the letter sent to the churches because the church is right now the plan and the program of Christ in this world. Christ is the founder of the church. His work is carried on through local churches. The church is the one who has the authority to do everything that Christ has commissioned it to do. So what we find in the church is the message of Christ. That's the gospel. We find the messenger of Christ. That's the pastor of the churches. And we also find the members of Christ. And that's you who are members of the local church. And so we come together as a church, and it's our place to put our light together to shine here for Jesus. So these churches then are symbolic of churches in all ages, and I believe that Christ comes to the church because there is no other place to receive this message. There's no other place on the face of, the war, of this earth that has the authority to disseminate the message that Christ has given. And so the reason why you are here in church tonight, because this is the place that God has given to put this word out. So you're not going to hear what I say tonight in political speeches. You didn't hear them spreading this kind of news at the fair last month. You, don't, you won't hear it in public schools. You're not going to hear it in the courtrooms today. You won't hear it in the legislature of the United States. The only ones who have the authority to preach this word is God's church. And friends, if the world is to hear the message of Jesus Christ, if they're to know about the unveiling of Christ, if they're to know what's going to happen in the end times, then the place to find out this information is right here in the Lord's New Testament church. So the church is the place where the good news of Christ is given. 
We must preach it because that's what we're commanded to do. But unfortunately, we would have to say for some people, everything that we have to say is not good news. Some of it is bad news. And the first thing that you have to do, you have to receive the bad news before you can get the good news. And the bad news is that all of us are sinners. Every single one of us has sinned against God, and there is punishment coming for our sins. And unless we turn to Jesus Christ and trust Him, then we will experience all the calamities and all the troubles that are outlined in this book. Then there's one last thought before we move on from this, uh, that, that every one of us, we need to thank God for the church. You need to thank the Lord that you have a place that you can come to and you can listen to the word that we're bringing tonight. The church is not going to be around forever. Now, as we read in Revelation, this message goes to seven churches, but then you get to the end of chapter 3 in Revelation, and the church is no more. The church has been taken out of the world. So the lighthouse of the gospel of Christ is only going to be here so long, and then the church will cease, because Jesus is going to rapture it out of the world. So there's coming a day when the people of the world will wish that they had listened to this message. And those who reject the message of Christ are going to find the calamity that's described in the book. It's coming. And so as the Word of God says that those who reject Jesus Christ, one of these days they're going to cry for the rocks to fall on them, to even hide them from the wrath of God. So it's because of that, friends, this is somebody that you need to meet. This is somebody that you need to get to know because one of two things are going to happen with you. Either he will exalt you, Or I'm sorry to say, he will exterminate you. So let's look at John's description. How does John see him in the Revelation? Well, one thing that we'll notice as we we start into this, that what we don't see, we don't see a blue-eyed, soft, reddish-brown-haired, silky, syrupy Jesus that you find in the pictures on people's walls. This is Jesus Christ, the God-man. This is Christ, the Son of God. This is God in His glory. Now, thirdly then, what we're going to talk about tonight is this description of Jesus. In verse number 10, John says, I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. I can't imagine what it must have been like for John as he was sitting there alone on a Sunday. And there, in that quietness there, as he's meditating, as he's thinking about the Lord, in deep meditation, in a hot, barren place... In that stillness, he heard behind him the voice as of a trumpet. Now, that was a clarion call. It was a loud, distinct call that John heard. It was sudden. It was clear. And throughout the book of Revelation, we'll see as we study that there are other times when God gives a call and God sounds a trumpet. And the reason that he does that, he wants to get people's attention. We need to sit up and listen when God is speaking. Back in the Old Testament, when God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Bible tells us there that there was much noise that accompanied the Lord's presence, and the people were frightened because of it. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, the Scripture says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning. Now, this is when Moses on Mount Sinai. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of a trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Friends, when God says something, He wants your attention. He doesn't want you to miss this. Now, sometimes when God speaks, He speaks so loudly. Oddly enough, He speaks so loudly that words are not even needed. 
You remember what the psalmist said? He said, the heavens declare the glory of God. And he went on to say, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So God declares himself in unmistakable ways. And yet there are atheists, there are evolutionists who say, well, where is this God? Where is that God you're talking about? We haven't seen him before. We haven't heard from him. And my question for them is, when he speaks, do you really want to hear what he has to say? Do you want to hear God's voice? You see, if people have rejected what has been spoken so eloquently in silence by the creation of the world, are they really going to want to hear when God speaks? And when he asks them, why didn't you trust me? Why could you look at all this creation out here and see everything that I've made, and you declare there is no God? And when the Bible says that God created man from the dust of the earth, and yet you're going with all this tommy rod of evolution, you think you want to hear God when he asks you those kinds of questions? Now, when the lid gets taken off, you may not want to hear this voice. If you don't hear his voice, and you don't hear the sound of the trumpet in the second coming of Christ, I promise you, you will not want to hear the sound that comes afterwards. So John heard the voice, and he says, I turned around to see who it was that was speaking. Well, there's one behind him who was really a sight to behold. And when John saw him, he saw the full length of his person. And I think that's important for us to note, because when he saw Jesus, he wasn't bending over, he wasn't hunched over, he's not bearing a cross. This is Jesus Christ standing to his full height, clothed with garments, as it says, down to his feet. So how does John see him? Well, first of all, he saw him in his role as priest. Verse number 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. I think it's more than noteworthy that Christ performs three offices for his people. He's a prophet, a priest, and a king. He's the greatest prophet that ever lived. Because we can see that right here in the book of John. In verse number 19, John says he wrote down things that were. He writes things that are happening uh, then. That's what Jesus told him to do. And then it says he's to write things that happen hereafter. So John is writing about things that are future. And that shows us that Christ is the prophet. Secondly, Christ is also our king. And the robe may suggest his kingship. And it may suggest his royalty. Because it says the robes here hung to the feet. And that's what that's what. Uh, the king's war at that time. And Jesus is from the tribe of kings. He's from the tribe of Judah. And when Jacob pronounced his blessings upon his son, he said in the book of, and his sons, he says in the book of Genesis, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and to him shall be the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is a reference to Jesus. So Jesus is a king, and he claimed to be a king. But I don't think that kingship is what he particularly has in mind here. Here we see Jesus as the great high priest of his people. The robe that he wears is suggestive of the robe that was worn by the high priest in the tabernacle and the temple. The girdle that it talks about here is also spoken of in, in, in the tabernacle worship. The high priest wore a girdle, or wore a, a sash, or we might say a, like a belt that held up his garments or held them in place. So let's go back and think about that for just a moment in that study of the tabernacle. Some of you haven't been around long enough, haven't been here long enough to have heard all of the messages about the tabernacle. But the tabernacle is the Bible's clearest and best picture that we really get of Jesus Christ. And it comes from the Old Testament. The tabernacle tells us about the beauty of the person of Christ 
Everything that was put into the tabernacle, all of it, is to show something about Christ and the majesty of the work that he came to do. The garments that the priest wore, those garments were emblematic that Jesus Christ would be our great high priest. And Jesus is the one who made sacrifice. Priest's job is to make sacrifice. It's his job to intercede for the people before God. But Jesus is different from most priests because Jesus didn't come to offer other sacrifices. He came to offer himself. He gave himself as a sacrifice, and he's the once-for-all sacrifice of God, the once-for-all sacrifice forever for his people. We don't have time to turn to the book of Hebrews now, but you may want to read through Hebrews, and there you'll find that Jesus made that one-time sacrifice, Then the Bible says that he sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And the reason he did that was because all sacrifices are over. We don't look for another sacrifice. Well, the garments of the priest were uh, to tell us about very, various aspects of Christ's work. The high priest, I, you know, I'd like to have time to even just go back and preach those messages on all the priest garments. But, but let me just briefly describe some things to you. One of the things that the, that the priest wore was a white linen coat. And that white linen coat was suggestive of the righteousness of Christ. Over that, he wore some outer garments. And those also speak of righteousness, and they speak about the service of Christ. There was a robe that's called the robe of the ephod. And this robe had a fringe of bells that went around it. There was a pomegranate, pomegranate and there was a, a bell, entered, uh, one after one, as it went around the complete hem of that garment. And what, what that was to show is that the priest, as he goes about the, the work of God in the tabernacle, he's to always be moving. The bells have to always be ringing while the priest is in the tabernacle. And the reason is because that shows the continual intercessory work of Christ. Christ always appears before his heavenly Father to speak in our behalf. He always intercedes for us. So these are the kinds of things that that come into John's mind. That golden girdle that he talks about, the priest wore that, and that was emblematic of service. The priest had a miter that he wore on his head and there was a golden plate that was, that was attached to it that said, Holiness to the Lord. And that represents the very holiness of Christ. So all of those things, those are coming to John's mind as he looks at Jesus standing with his garment. But here we find that Christ comes with power and glory, but never is there a moment of forgetfulness that he is the great high priest of his people. Jesus is always filled with compassion for his people. But what we also see here in that power and glory is that there are some who are going to suffer his wrath. Now, the next thing that he sees, he sees Jesus in his role as purifier. Verses 14 and 15 say, His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He has white hair, and that's symbolic of his age. He's the ancient of days. It's symbolic of wisdom. Now, there are some people like the Jehovah Witnesses, for example, who say that Jesus is not the Jehovah of the Old Testament. But there's a peculiar thing that you read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. The description that we have of Jehovah in the Old Testament is exactly what we're reading here in Revelation in the New Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, it says, I beheld till thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. 
His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. Jesus is, friends, he is Jehovah. He's the great I am that we find in the Old Testament, the one that appeared to Moses at the burning bush. He's the ancient of days, the Bible says. He's the eternally existent one. That white hair is also symbolic of his purity. Then we see in this description, it talks about his feet. And of course, Jesus as a king means that people are going to bow at his feet. And Jesus has the authority to judge his people. Everyone bows at the feet of a king. Then it talks about eyes that are penetrating like a fire and feet like fine brass uh, burned in a furnace. And what that talks about is that Jesus knows the very deepest recesses of our heart. He sits in judgment over us. He's able to search our hearts and there's not one sin that's ever hidden from his sight. So Christ is the one who purifies his people from their sin. He burns up all the dross so that we shine like gold. We were talking, I think it was last week, about the judgment seat of Christ. And there it tells us that all of the works that we do that don't glorify Christ, all of those things are going to be burned up. And then the works that we do for Christ, the ones that are done with the right heart and with the right motives in mind, those things will stay forever and they'll always magnify Jesus. Now there's a third description that we find in verse number 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars... And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. So thirdly, we see Jesus in his role as protector. Last week, we discussed what those stars were all about. And the book of Revelation tells us what that is in verse number 20. These stars are the pastors of those churches in Asia. And again, representative of churches in all, age, in all ages. And so that, that shows us that Christ is the controller, and he's the protector of his people. There's a sharp sword, it says, that, go out of his ma- that goes out of his mouth. Later on, we're going to get into a little bit more about the meaning of that. But that doesn't mean, of course, that Christ actually has a sword coming out of his mouth. That's symbolic of something. And the real intention here is to show us that Christ is not going to permit any harm to come to his church. Jesus said in the book of Matthew, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So what we really have here then is a warning to anyone who tries to persecute that church of Christ. Anyone who tries to harm God's people, Jesus Christ is the one who stands in the midst of his churches. He has the pastors of those churches in his hand. And no one had better tried to inflict any harm upon his church. Well, does that mean then that no individual church will ever go out of existence? Well, that's not true because the seven churches that we talk about in Asia, they're not in existence anymore. They're not around anymore. Christ promised that his church would be here until he comes again. But what he was talking about is the institution of the church. There'll never fail to be a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ somewhere on this earth until Jesus comes again. So Jesus promises perpetuity, but the continuance of any individual church, even of the Berean Baptist Church, is dependent upon our faithfulness to Jesus. And if we are no longer faithful, then we'll no longer be the Lord's church. But I also want to warn you about something else or let you know about something else, and that is that the best efforts of governments of this world and the best efforts of other religions and even people who claim to be Christians, their best efforts at trying to exterminate to stamp out, to persecute the people of God, has never been successful in removing God's people from this world. What happened in the 4th century 
is that Rome finally gave up trying to persecute Christians. Constantine, who was the Roman emperor at that time, decided that, well, if we can't beat them, then we best join them. And so what he did was he joined up with what he thought was Christianity at the time, and the result of that is the Roman Catholic Church that we have today. Now, as I said, it looked like Rome had given up with persecution. But if you study the history of the Roman Catholic Church, you find out that down through all the centuries, for 14 centuries and more, the Roman Catholic Church did not stop persecution. In fact, they were the greatest persecutors persecutors in the history of religion. And so what they did, they put millions of people to death because they didn't agree with Roman Catholicism. Now, what we have in, in Roman Catholicism today is, is something that's totally not what God intended for the church. And really what this does, I mean, if it hadn't been for democracy, if it hadn't been for the public shame of persecution, Rome would still be persecuting people today. And you say, well, Pastor Smith, how could you possibly say a thing like that? The Pope, he's one of the greatest guys that ever lived. How could you say the Roman Catholic Church would continue persecution? I say it because it's still happening in the world today. You ask some of our missionaries that work in places where Roman Catholicism has control in third world countries, and they are still persecuting people that are preaching the gospel of Christ. Just ask our missionaries about it. Persecution is not ended. So the heart of that entire system is as black as it ever was. So here is a warning that judgment is coming. Christ is the protector of his people, and Christ says, vengeance is mine. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So, friend, there's a day of retribution coming. And whether it's problems that come from inside of the church that people cause, or whether it comes from outside of the church, there's going to come a day of reckoning, and people are going to stand before God and face the consequences. Now, I'm going to ask you, does that look like the description that you see of Jesus in the gospel accounts? Is that the same Jesus that we see there? Well, in fact, it is the same Jesus. We're just seeing a different side or a different manifestation of his work. Now, his work in the first advent when Christ came, that was to be a compassionate Savior. That's the time that he comes as a sacrifice. But in the second coming of Christ, he comes as a conqueror. He's still filled with compassion for his people, but he also comes with wrath and vengeance for a world of unbelievers and of persecutors. But then the picture goes on. John John wants us to meet this person, so next he sees him in his role as potentate. Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. Christ's purpose is to come and rule. Now, John's reaction to Jesus in this this instance is, is kind of interesting to us because Jesus is never aloof with his people, but at the same time, you have to respect who he is. You needn't think that when Jesus comes back that you're going to go up to him and just throw your arm around him and pat him on the back and say, you know, uh, just like you're someone who's very familiar with Jesus. John saw him, and the Bible says he was overcome with that might and that, the majesty. This is his sovereign. You see, even the kids' kids, uh, king's kids don't sit on his lap in the throne room. And so uh, John sees him in that majesty. I related some time before about this, and maybe you remember this, I was talking about Arthur Pink. 
Arthur Pink was a, was a, great, uh, a great writer and theologian. And he was of the opinion that we have to be very careful in using the name of Jesus as a standalone. And so Arthur Pink would never refer to him just as Jesus. He always added Christ to that. He always added perhaps or referred to him by one of his other titles. But he would never simply refer to him as Jesus. And the reason he didn't was because he thought that was just too familiar. I don't know if he's right about that. Uh, Maybe he's right. I don't know. But I'm certain about this, that when John saw Christ, he didn't come up to him and shake his hand, put his arm around him, say, how you doing, bud? Good to see you. The Bible says he fell at his feet as dead. That's because he's the sovereign. But I want you to notice what Jesus, or Jesus Christ, if we follow Arthur Pink, he laid his hand on him and told him not to fear. Now that that was a sign, or I should say not a sign, that he was going to pick him up and give him a bear hug, but it was a sign that he recognized who John was, and he recognized him as a servant. So... What we need to do, we recognize Christ also. He recognizes us, but we always have to give him the reverence. Never be terrified of him. We don't have to because we're his children, but we give him the reverence that he deserves. Now, it was always a common reaction of people in the Old Testament uh, when they saw manifestations of God or even when they saw an angel, when there was some manifestation of God's deity, that they were always very afraid of what they'd seen. I mean, all, all of them had the same reaction. Daniel had that reaction in his visions. Samuel's father, Manoah, was so afraid when the, when, uh, when the angel appeared to them and told them about the birth of Samuel, he was so afraid, he said, we're going to die because we've seen God. Job reacted the same way. He was afraid to stand in the presence of God. But you know, there are many people that I've talked to that claim that they have heard God audibly and they say that they've seen visions of Jesus Christ. It's only been maybe three or four weeks ago that someone stood right outside the door, right out here in the front, and told me about Jesus appearing to them one night in their bedroom. Now, I'm going to ask you something about that. Why didn't you fall at his feet as dead? That's what John did. That's what Daniel did. It's what Manoah did. It's what Job did. And if all of them had to fall at his feet and they quaked, I mean, they, they were afraid of that presence then how can you tell me that Jesus came to you in a, in a sweet, still, small voice in the middle of the night and appeared to you in your bedroom and you didn't die of a heart attack? You tell me how that happened. Now listen to what the potentate says here. He says in verse, verse 17, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 we saw how the resurrection of Christ figures into the appearance of Christ uh, in in the last century, as well as the resurrection has importance in the first century. His resurrection has importance in the last century. Because then Christ comes to settle everything for good. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. And if you tell me you have trouble finding this, I'm going to come out there and beat you with a wet noodle because you should know exactly where this is. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we've been studying it and studying it, and I hope that you remember these verses. Verse number 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 20. 
Now back up over there in Revelation, he said, I'm the one who, was li- who liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end. Of course, that's what we're talking about now. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So this is the potentate. This is Almighty God. And what he says, what Jesus Christ says, I have the keys of hell and death. You don't have the key. The Pope doesn't have the key. And those priests in those little booths, they don't have the key. Jesus is, Christ is holding the key. And friends, it takes the passion of Christ to unlock both spiritual and physical death. Jesus controls life and death. Now, you'll pardon me if I'm a little bit prejudiced here, but I'm going to quote something to you from, from uh, something that my dad wrote in that little book we have on the Revelation. He comments on this where Jesus says, I have the keys of hell and death. Here's what he said. In these words lie the explanation and the exemplification of his complete victory, both for himself and for all who by faith are in him. Hell... Now, that's hell in that verse where he says, I have the keys of hell and death. Hell is actually the word Hades there. And he says, hell or Hades is the abode of the soul or spirit. Death is the condition of the body without the spirit. The soul of man is locked in Hades, either in paradise or torment. The body is locked in death, helpless to do anything. The soul of man cannot of itself unite with the body held in death. Neither can the body unite with the soul. But there is one who has the keys of death and Hades, he can unlock. And this is exactly what he will do when he comes again. Now, let me explain to you what he's saying there. What he means by Hades is the disembodied state. So when your body dies, your soul is released from that body. And, of course, that means that at that point you are without a body. The soul either goes to heaven or it goes to hell. And the soul is powerless to unite with the body again. It can't do that by itself. So it can't come back together. But when Jesus comes back, because he has the keys to hell and death, or Hades and death, when he comes back in that first resurrection, then those who believe in him will have their bodies reunited with the soul that's in heaven. Those who die in Christ, or uh, die without Christ, rather, they're awaiting the second death. And their souls are going to be called up out of hell where they've been in torment. And those souls will also be reunited with their bodies. And then, as the Bible shows us, that's the second death when they're cast into the lake of fire. Now, what John is saying, or what Jesus says here really in the Revelation, is that I have the keys to all of that. I have the keys of hell and death. Friend, if there's somebody that you need to meet, this is the person. If there's ever anybody that you want to meet, you want to meet him. And the reason you want to meet him is because you can't avoid meeting him. You're going to meet him one way or the other. You're either going to meet him in unbelief or you're going to meet him in belief. One day you're going to meet him. Now, now let me give you the last thought of the message tonight. Worship him or wail because of him. Either you worship him now or you'll wail later because of him. 
So this one who says, I am Alpha and Omega, he said, I'm the beginning and the end. He says, I have the keys of hell and death. He's the one that you're going to meet. And here's what he says in the book of Matthew. Jesus himself said, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. You know, somebody kind of summarized those verses into a little phrase. The little phrase was turn or burn. There are a lot of people who do not believe that this God that we trust would really ever send anybody to hell. But friend, if Jesus talks about heaven being a real place, then you can trust him that hell is also a real place. As real as one is, so is as real the other is real. So, turn or burn. That's the message that Jesus gave in the book of Matthew. My question for you, are you ready to meet this someone? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time we spent together tonight around your word. Lord, what a majestic view that we see of Christ. Quite unlike what most people really think that Jesus will be like when he comes back. But Lord, all of this is changed for the person who knows you as Savior. You don't come back in order to cast us in that burning furnace of fire. But rather, Lord, you come back to reward your people and to take us home to be with you. I just pray that everyone here tonight might be a believer in you as their personal Savior. Bless in this time of invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.